All right, this uh, morning or evening, depending on wherever you are and when you're listening, we're going to be talking about the value, uh, the leadership value that we call embracing ambiguity. So um, we're not going to get there for a little while, but you can go ahead and grab a Bible so that when we do get there, um, we're going to look in the book of Hebrews at the idea of faith, kind of as we get to the point of really uh, talking about some of the solutions that we need to be able to find. It'll be page 732 in the Bibles that we have on all our campuses, so you could grab that, but it'll be Hebrews chapter 11. So you can mark it, and uh, we'll go back to that. Whenever um, I confront these kind of leadership issues and um, I need a little advice and counsel, the first thing I do is call Mike Chabero. And so if you want a cell phone number, I'll give it to you, and you can do the same thing and make your life better. Um, but I, I got in touch with Mike as I was preparing this talk a couple weeks ago and just thinking about it and, and told him kind of what I was thinking about, what I was looking for, and said, hey, man, do you have an illustra- a historical illustration for me about this idea and of embracing ambiguity and why that's important for you as a leader? And within like 45 seconds, I had a case study from a consulting company that he does some work for, plus I had... Uh, a video section out of Band of Brothers, and I was tempted for us just to watch Band of Brothers this morning, but then I thought that'd be me avoiding my responsibility. So I'm going to share with you a, just a brief case study to try to illustrate why this is so important for us, because we've already seen that at the center of what it means to be a man is the need to reject passivity and to accept responsibility and to lead courageously. So if at the core, leadership is important for for all people, and we all find ourselves in circumstances where we need to lead, and some people have varying gifts, and so there's some ambiguity even in that as to where you fall on a certain continuum of leadership at any point in your life. But here's what we can say, is that in terms of how we are constituted as male in the image of God, at the core of our identity is a call to lead. And if you are not leading in the areas where God has made you responsible, Even if you're a young man and it's a part of self-leadership, of owning responsibility for the limited areas that you have in your life, even of leading yourself, that when you deny that, that it does some sort of damage to your soul. It hollows you out. And it opens you up to all types of other temptations because there is energy that has been put within you by God as he created you for the purpose of you exercising that in leadership. And when you don't spend that energy in that area, then it's going to go toxic in some other areas, generally revolving around fake work and your hobbies or pursuing energy related to sex. And I don't have time to go into all of that, but here's what I would say is that it's very important for us. And so we want to come back to this, that this is not circumstantial. How Leadership expresses itself in your season of life is related to your circumstances. And the ways in which you lead will be conditioned by the unique gifts that you have or the lack of gifts that you have in different areas. But the question of leadership is one that's fundamental for us, and it is a central responsibility for every man. And if you don't exercise it, then that energy that God has put within you will turn toxic And it will lead to those around you feeling abandoned or those around you feeling abused. 
going to happen, guaranteed. It's the story of human history. And if we look, you can see that. In human history, what's the rap on men? They either don't show up, they abandon those who are relying upon them, or they abuse those who are relying upon them. And we're trying to live down thousands of years of that history. And it's a legitimate indictment on our gender. But we, as men, want to change that. And this idea that if you're going to lead effectively, then you are necessarily going to need to embrace ambiguity is something that we got to get in our heads. So I know for some of you are like, what does ambiguity mean? What does it mean to embrace it? I thought we were supposed to move things toward clarity. We're going to talk about those things, and hopefully I'll be able to get you clear about ambiguity. And that doesn't make any sense, but that's what we're going to try and do, all right? So as I got in the middle of this talk, I thought, this is stupid. I'm trying to get people clear about ambiguity. But that's what we're doing. So here's what I'll say. Here's, here's the historical case study, is if we look at Brigadier General John Buford, all right, so on June 29th, on the, on, on, right before the Battle of Gettysburg was coming, John Buford, who uh, was a cavalry commander in the Union Army, was given these orders, all right, so when you get the orders he was given, you will take two brigades and a fully armed battery, which is artillery, to Gettysburg by tomorrow night, all right, you got some clarity, The two brigades at Gettysburg will cover and protect the front and communicate all information of the enemy rapidly and surely. So you think, okay, it's pretty clear. You're going to take these two brigades. You're going to go to this area. But then you say, protect the front. Well, where is the front? Because we don't really know where the enemy is. There's a lot of ambiguity in that. And how are we to protect it and how long? And we're to communicate rapidly. Well, he's not told exactly how to go get the intelligence that he needs that he's supposed to communicate back. So he basically has 2,700 men, and he's sent to this area to protect it and to establish a front line and then to communicate back. So when he gets to Gettysburg, he realized that there has been some movement forward, and he gets some intelligence from the people who are living in the little borough there. The idea that there are 40,000 confederate troops that are making their way into the arena so he finds out very quickly that he's outnumbered about 15 to 1 and then he can't account for Jeb Stewart and his cavalry and Jeb Stewart has this habit of he he likes he's kind of flashy he likes to ride all the way around and just kind of show off an attack from unexpected places and very daring very risky kind of one of Robert E. Lee's pets, he really loves him, and so he's having to gamble, where's Jeb Stewart in cavalry, because that really changes things for me. So he gets there, and now the direction that he has is ambiguous at best. And his nearest infantry support is 10 miles away. And you compound that with the idea that at one point he had already had his men engaged with Longstreet's infantry, where he was outnumbered, they had 27,000 men, and for six hours he had tried to hold them off while he was waiting on infantry support that never came, and he had suffered enormous casualties at Manassas 1. So he's got all that rolling around in his head, but here's what he knows is that he's supposed to establish a front with the 2,700 men in the single battery that he has. And so what he does is he makes some strategic decisions, some tactical decisions, actually. 
and he tries to take the best ground that he can, and he gets information back. He surveys the land, and he realizes if we don't take this ground here, if we can't establish a line on these high points, then we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And he sends information back, and he hopes that support is going to come in time. Now, here's the thing. As it turns out, this is arguably the turning point in the Civil War for the Union. Because if he doesn't establish that line long enough for the advancing troops, 40,000, to check up and then have to start doing their due diligence to find out how many men are there on this high ground, he's, in a sense, having to bluff. And he's gambling on the fact that people are going to come behind. I mean, these are real people who's gonna, who are going to die. And he has to take all of that responsibility onto himself. And, of course, the gamble pays off. Help comes in time. That's a high-water mark of the Confederacy. Lee goes all in over the course of that three-day battle. And the defeat never, I mean, really, at that point, the war is over. It's just a matter of time and opportunity with the proper execution of a battle plan. And the war is over. But there's a man with some general direction who has to be willing to own responsibility for making some decisions in the moment without assurance of how it's going to turn out, without clarity from those above him. He can't actually get clarity from those above him. He has to own it in that moment, knowing that he may be sacrificing everyone who is under his charge. That's, now, that's, that's a clear example of what it means to embrace ambiguity. And so when we talk about embracing ambiguity, what we are talking about is filling the void of doubt and uncertainty with personal responsibility. That's what we're talking about. If every decision that needed to be made was clear then we would put children in charge of the world. Because right and wrong, black and white, there, there are a handful of things that are right and wrong, black and white, and are apparent and obvious. And if that's the case, we just put eight-year-olds in charge of the world. Because it isn't, it, isn't it isn't that difficult to make those kind of decisions. But almost every decision that needs to be made, almost every exercise in leadership involves someone having to own the overall cause and being willing to step into the gap and to take responsibility for success or failure, for victory or failure, for suffering. Somebody's got to step into that gap, and they've got to fill that void with personal leadership. There is no substitute for it. A plan cannot replace that because a plan was created outside of those evolving circumstances. And so someone has to take the best understanding that they have of that plan, step into that void, and then improvise. And when things begin to go wrong is when you don't have someone in the midst of that who is willing to own responsibility. And so here's what it means for something to be ambiguous. Let's just go to a little bit of a definition here. When things are ambiguous, it means that circumstances 
are open to more than one possible interpretation. Circumstances are open to more than one possible interpretation. Or things are unclear or inexact because a choice between multiple alternatives has not yet been made. And here's the reality that we're going to have to own and we're going to have to get into our heads. Is that ambiguity is neither good nor bad. It simply is. Ambiguity is neither good nor bad. It simply is. It always is. You cannot remove it. And this is one of the things in my spirituality early on as I became a Christian and I came of age in kind of a modernistic worldview where we tended to have a little bit oversimplistic. We had a higher view of certainty than people who are growing up now in postmodernism have. People today tend to think that nothing is certain, right? And so there are dangers on both sides. But I thought you needed to have an answer for everything. So I studied the Bible in that way. And the problem is the Bible intentionally obscures certain things and doesn't give you clarity. And so part of my spirituality was I was always trying to make things clearer than the Bible was. And part of growing up in maturity for me was to say, if the Bible has not made something clear, then I need to get okay with it. So, for example, for me, how old the earth is. I don't believe the Bible makes that clear. Now, for a long time, I kept trying to, to make the Bible fit into the idea that I need a timeline for how old the earth is. And I know some of you all believe that the Bible tells you how old the earth is. And that's fine. I'm not binding your conscience on that. I'm just telling you, I don't believe that. I don't believe that was in Moses' mind as he's writing the first five books of the Old Testament. That wasn't a question that they were asking as I've studied all of that back then. That was not something they were concerned about. That was not a big issue. It became a big issue for us in the 19th century when Charles Darwin challenge some of our basic understandings of creation and how that came about. And so we started reading the Bible through the insecurity and uncertainty that Charles Darwin and some of his theories and then a bunch of people who jumped on that bandwagon. And so we take our uncertainty and we try to read that into the scriptures and find clarity in it. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you. I think that does a disservice to the scriptures. But in my early years of studying the Bible, I was just panicked trying to find all this clarity. And here's what I'm going to say to you is that the Bible doesn't make everything clear. Everything is clear in the mind of God, but in our feeble minds, things are all, there's always going to be ambiguity. Even in eternity, there's going to be ambiguity. There's going to be things that you don't understand in eternity. You're not going to get into eternity, and suddenly you become God, and you know all things as they relate to everything else. Then we'd all be God. We'd be omniscient. That's not what's going to happen to you. You're going to have limited understanding when you get to heaven. You're going to ask questions. Does that make sense to you? So ambiguity is neither good nor bad. We can argue about what the Bible makes clear and what the Bible doesn't make clear. But let's not spiritualize clarity and say that if you're spiritual, then you've got to be clear and you've got to have an answer for things. Because people ask me questions all the time and I go, I don't know. And some of our personalities are better with that than others of our personalities. And so this is what I'm going to say to you. For some of you, this talk is going to be difficult. Because you want more clarity than life, than God is going to give you, and you spiritualize your need for clarity, and you think that something must be wrong when you don't have clarity. And this is what I'm going to say to you. That dream has to die if you are going to lead effectively. It's got to die. Because God is not going to tell you what you need to do all the time and erase your need to trust him in the gaps 
and to take responsibility in faith. And that's what we're going to talk about it means to embrace ambiguity. So there are a couple of dangers that we can have. The first one is that we can let um, our desire for clarity drive us to a false clarity, make things more black and white than they are, and then we create unrealistic plans and we try to force our circumstances and our families and our decisions into unrealistic plans, and we aren't open-minded and we aren't open to make changes and we aren't open to revise things, and we hide behind a false clarity. That's one way that you can really mess things up. The other way that you can really mess things up is that you can let ambiguity overwhelm you so that you begin to hide in inaction. And I'll tell you the truth. Matt's talk last week on, um, oh, what do we call it? Action, right? I don't remember. Being action-oriented. Thank you. Really, probably should have been done after this. Like, after I listened to Matt's talk last week, I was like, hey, bro, I should have done the ambiguity talk first. He's like, sorry, I can't help you. I was like, well, hey, you laid this out. It's your fault. Be smarter next time. So we had a little conversation, and he's like, go figure it out. It'll be fine. We'll do it again another time. So here's what I would tell you is that this idea of ambiguity, you're going to have to embrace it in order for you to be action-oriented in the world. And one of the big ways that you can mess up is in order to have action, you create false clarity, or you can just be paralyzed, and you can hide in inaction. And so what we want to say is an effective leader embraces ambiguity by owning responsibility and moving forward in faith without the assurance that they are right. You can't know that you're right. You're moving forward in faith, which means that you're trusting God. For us, as Christians, that's what it means. Is that we're trusting God that ultimately he's not going to let all future blessing hang upon whether I'm right or not. And so I can humbly move forward in faith without the assurance that I'm right. Now let me give you just a few case studies and personal illustrations. And then we're going to talk about the roots of why we don't do this and what a fairly simple solution is for the problem. So here's, here's the first personal illustration that I'm going to give you. Is that when I was a junior at Furman University, I realized that um, even though I hadn't dated in college, and I didn't date in college because I became a Christian right before I went to college, and, and a big part of my pre-Christian life involved just not having healthy relationships with girls. And I knew I didn't know how to do that, so I thought the best way to avoid really having a train wreck, and I had one relationship where I was dating a girl right after I became a Christian, and it didn't end well for her, for me, and I didn't lead well, and so I just knew, I, I don't need to be doing that. So I didn't, I didn't date while I was in college. But I had a lot of girls that I was friends with. And so at the end of my junior year, I started looking around, and I was thinking, you know, I want to be married one day. I'm getting ready to go into the work world or go to seminary, one and, like, around me, I know lots of girls who are attractive and who are Christians and who really love God. My odds are better here than they're going to be after I graduate. I've I got a pool. I've got a small, I got, it's a target-rich environment, right? All right, so I've got a small firm of 2,500 students, 
Sorry for the women who listen to this. I got a pond of 2,500 people. More than half of them are girls who are smart. And a bunch of those I know are Christians, and I've gotten to watch them for the last three years live out their faith. I was like, it ain't going to get any better than this, right? So I was like, I need to start fishing. And I remember where I was sitting at a table with a couple of girls that I'm friends with, and it just dawned on me, and I looked across the table, and I was talking to Melanie and Wendy, and I was like, hey, I want to... I think I want to be married when I graduate. And they were like, hey, Bill, you don't even date. You ain't been on a date in three years. And they started laughing at me. And I was like, yeah, I know, but I mean, there are a lot of great girls who are around here, and y'all know a bunch of them. And, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe y'all. I mean, I don't know. And I was just thinking out loud. Because, I mean, that's the thing about me. It's all right out there, right? So I was like, I think I want to be married. And so, and it got clear to me that that, phrase, it's not good for a man to be alone, like that resonated within me personally. And I'm not saying that's true for everybody, but like for me, I was like, yeah, not good for a man to be alone. So I didn't have any clarity about any of that other than I had a handful of ideas that were just like normal observations. And then very shortly after I came to that awareness, through no initiative of my own, I ended up on a date with my wife because some of her friends and some of my friends. And it's a big sorority formal. And I went to that. And so while I was on that sorority formal, I realized, I mean, I'll never forget, my, I, I knew that I, I thought Rachel was attractive. There were just some intangibles about her that I, I found attractive. But then while we were away that weekend, I remember we'd been at the beach all day in Hilton Head, and she went upstairs, and she got into her dress for that night, and she came downstairs, and, I mean, I, w- I was done. I was like, I don't, I don't, mm, whatever. I was like, that is awesome, right? So I had that working for me. And then I came home from that, and I was like, well, if you got that working for you, then does she really love God, and is she willing to do hard things? Because I already knew at that point that maybe I want to be a missionary. I was going that summer to South Korea. But I knew that I wanted to give my life to doing hard things for the sake of the gospel. I wanted to know if the gospel was really worth it. So I thought, I want to go do something. I knew I want to go do something that's really difficult and risky to find out if this transaction that Jesus, if you lose your life, that you'll find it. I had that idea in my head. I knew I wanted to do that. So I actually just started putting her in some situations where I would see things. I'd share my thoughts with her. I went to Korea. While I was in Korea, we were writing letters back and forth, and I was getting to see what God was doing in her heart. And I didn't know she went on a date with an Atlanta Falcons football player while I was in Korea. So like, I got, she didn't tell me that until I was found out after we got married. But I'm still a little bitter about it. So... But when his career failed and he never really was a success, I felt vindicated. So, <laughs> All right, so, but here, here's, how the pro, here's what the decision-making process went like. And like, I kept wanting in the middle of that. I was like, God, you, you show me, show me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, show me. So I was praying, and God didn't tell me anything. But what I had to do is figure out, is her faith real? Am I attracted to her? Is she willing to do hard things? And once I got clear on those things, God never told me, hey, Bill, you need to marry Rachel. And I asked him. But over time, I just realized this is probably the best available option. And she's low maintenance, and she's attractive, and she's fun. She's good balance for me because I'm high maintenance and not fun and not attractive. So I was like, that's good, yin and yang. I was like, we'll balance each other out. It'd be awesome. So I proposed to her. We got married 24 years later, four kids. But it, 
I can't absolve in that moment. I was wanting, and I'd had some people tell me, you need spiritualize this decision. God needs to tell you, you need to have clear direction from God. I didn't get any of that. I had a certain amount of clarity about what God was leading me to do as I understood it, and I had to just look for it. I had to own responsibility for that decision. I could not push that back on God and say, it's your job to tell me. God had put that responsibility onto me. Let me give you another example, just a couple of little case studies. This is one of the things that I realized. Kids, and some of you young people who are listening to this, here, here's one of the things that I realized is, is a lot of times kids will pretend that they don't have enough clarity to act. And I saw this. like I would give my kids responsibility to do something, and then they would come up against some roadblock where they had to make a decision, and I'd come home and they hadn't done what I told them to do, and they'd be like, well, you know, Dad, um, the lawnmower wouldn't start. And I'd be like, well, did you try this, and did you try this, and did you try this? In order to make, well, no, I mean, it just wouldn't start. And I didn't know if you'd want me to, like, go get another lawnmower, you know, or if you wanted me to, I know, I know what you wanted me to do. I I wanted you to cut the grass, Skippy. That's what I wanted. I want the grass cut. Or come back and ask a bunch of questions. And this is what I began to realize is, a lot of times people ask questions and they say they're looking for clarity. When they don't really want clarity, they're just stalling on taking responsibility for something right? So, hey, and you go do that. Well, do you want me to do it here or there? Do you want me to do it this or that? Do you want me to do that? I just want it done. I don't really care. And so, hiding behind a lack of clarity, that's something that happens, and kids do this all the time, and this is one of the things I want to really encourage those of you who are fathers, is don't give your kids a whole bunch of clarity, because life ain't going to give them a bunch of clarity. God ain't going to give them a bunch of clarity. You give them responsibility that's commensurate to the freedoms that they enjoy, and then you make them go figure it out. And well, they don't work hard now. When they come back and ask good questions and answer those questions, but if they're not asking good questions, if they're asking lazy questions because they just don't want to take responsibility for it, don't help them. Here's another way that this whole thing gets a wall. Here's another little study. A father who creates false clarity around some rules so he doesn't have to lead personally. So in order to avoid having to make a decision, I try to, rule, I try to make rules for everything in my family so I never have to engage personally and have to spend any personal leadership credibility because i got a rule for everything. I don't really have to engage you. I don't have to deal with the differences in personalities in my kids and the fact that one thing may be good for one and not good for another. One may need more help and more financial involvement. Like This is one of the things that I've seen where I think parents really mess this up, is that they decide that everything is going to be equal between their kids. And I think that is a ridiculous idea. I cannot say it more strongly. Because every kid needs different things. So you're going to give the same amount of, co- of money for college to a kid who can roll out of bed and make a 1400 on the SAT and subsidize his laziness as a kid who works hard to make Bs and is going to struggle to make over 1000 on the SAT. And you're going to say, everything's got to be equal. That is bad leadership. But it gets you off the hook because then I don't have to engage this issue and say, hey, you stewarding your 1,400 roll-out-of-bed brain is the same as you stewarding your roll-out-of-bed 900 SAT brain. And I'm going to give you the same amount, so I'm going to subsidize your laziness, and I'm not really going to partner with you to help you to create opportunities for you. Do you see that? 
There's some ambiguity in that. You make a rule, and then you can hide behind it, and you can have the appearance of loving everybody, but in one case, you're subsidizing one person's laziness, and over here, you're not partnering with somebody who needs some more strength and help. So that'd be an example. Or here's, here's another example. How about the employee who quotes his boss back to himself? So the employee who pays real careful attention, and the kids, I'm going to tell you, don't ever use something your dad said against him at a later moment when he's trying to hold you accountable. That is not going to end well for you. But there are plenty of people in the business world who will listen to, and they're in one context, and they'll see something, and then they'll get in a difficult context where they have to lead, and they have to do something that's uncomfortable, and they don't do it, and they say, well, because my boss said this, but your boss is not there right now. Your boss said that in a vacuum a long time ago. And then you avoid making a decision in the moment, and you hide behind it and say, well, you know, he said. But you know good and well that if he were there, he would not act in that manner, but you're using it as a way to avoid ambiguity and take responsibility in the moment, and you're creating a false clarity that you can hide behind. You see that? So I'm just trying to give you different examples and case studies so that you can kind of see how that works. Now, here's what I want to tell you is. Let me just give you, here's the spiritual piece. Uh, hopefully we're clear about ambiguity now, right? So now that we're ambiguously clear, let's, let's look at what are the enemies of this. And this is where the Hebrews 11 text begins to come in. And this is what I'm going to tell you is that there are three real enemies that get in the way of your ability to embrace ambiguity and to own responsibility in the moment for what God has entrusted to you. And the first of those three enemies, we're just going to call unbelief. And if we go back to the, the way in which we view the operational language that we have for masculinity, again, not the only way to talk about it, but what has been a real helpful way for us as a church, is that God's calling us to reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, in expectation of God's reward. And if, if you are not trusting that your reward lies with God, then you will not move forward into an ambiguous circumstance and put yourself out there. You are going to hide either behind a false clarity that doesn't really engage the nuance of that situation and protect yourself that way, or you're going to hide in inactivity. That's what's going to happen for you. Because you aren't sure of the outcome and you can't really trust God. And here's the thing that I would say to you. Is that if you don't ultimately, if you don't believe that everything that you have entrusted to God, he is going to keep and then he's going to give back to you, including your very life, then you are not going to be free to embrace ambiguity. If you don't really trust God in that way, you are not going to be able to really be courageous and to move forward because that unbelief is going to gut your ability to do it. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see a couple of things. Verse 1 says, Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance of things, what does the text say? 
that we cannot see, things that are ambiguous. We can't see them. We don't know which direction it's really going to go. But faith enables us to have confidence and assurance in that moment. It enables us to have confidence and assurance that the outcome, even though I may not be able to see it, God says the outcome is going to be blessing for me. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But faith enables me to lay hold of that, and then I'm able to own responsibility in my circumstances for that. So if you don't have that kind of faith, if unbelief dominates your life, then you are not going to be able to embrace ambiguity. And if you don't have that kind of God reliance, then here's where your assurance, and these are kind of twin ideas that hang together. If you, if you are not relying on God, so if you are living in unbelief, then here's what has to happen is, then you have to rely on yourself. Because you got to rely on something, right? So Because you're not, gonna, you're not just going to live with no sense of gravity and no orientation. So if you don't orient your life around God, then your life is going to be oriented around yourself. And it, you may try and build it around some relationship, a marriage, your kids, you know, your son's athletic career, which I'm going to tell you, that's a bad one, all right? And there are a lot of bad ones, Right? Whatever the cause du jour, whatever the issue of the day is, that seems like the good one. But at the end of the day, that's a form of pride. It's a form of self-reliance. And here's what I'm going to tell you self-reliance looks like. If we were to create a continuum of pride, then you'll find yourself over the course of time on one end of this continuum or the other. And so... When we look at the continuum of pride, and this is just for your own self-awareness to help you make some diagnostics about yourself. Someone who is proud, we tend to think of people who are proud as being people who are filled with hubris. They're puffed up, they think they're awesome, and they'll let you know how awesome they are. All right? But that's one end of what it means to be proud, to be inflated, to be puffed up. And it's purely circumstantial. So pride will manifest itself in both of these ways, hubris and despair. Both, both ends form pride, express pride, or manifestations of it. Because if you're not relying on God and you're relying on yourself, hubris is when things seem to be going my way, I'm puffed up and I feel bulletproof, right? So, oh brother, where art thou, Right? I hope you love that movie. You should love that movie. If you don't, something's wrong with you. You're not really a man. I don't know. The Coen brothers, brilliant on a bunch of different levels. But in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is kind of their take on Homer's odyssey set in Depression-era South, I mean, what could be better than that, right? Great dialogue. But you have this, you know, babyface Nelson is this one character, and when things are going away, he's, he's, he swings between one end of the continuum and the other, is he's either 10 feet tall and bulletproof, right, and full of himself, or then he's just in complete despair on the other end of the spectrum. And a lot of us live our lives this way. And we try to avoid, we try to avoid situations that we don't feel matched for, and we just withdraw and hide from them. We don't embrace ambiguity because it, it exposes our weakness, and then we find ourselves falling into despair. 
And so if you find yourself vacillating between hubris and being puffed up and feeling confident, like, I got this, and then you fall off a cliff and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't handle any of this. What's going on? Then this is what I can tell you. You're proud. You're relying on yourself. And if you're not relying on God, you're going to rely on yourself, and you are going to, based on your circumstance, you're going to be up or down, which means that you're not going to be free to be steady and own responsibility and embrace the ambiguity of circumstances around you. And this is why I can tell you is that we spend, as a church, an inordinate amount of time trying to bring stability to families that are being led by men who don't really trust God, who are relying on themselves, and who vacillate between feeling like, I got this, I can handle this, and then they fall off the cliff, I don't know what to do. And other people are having to step in. We spend a lot of money as a church investing in personal leadership for people who are willing to step into those environments, and a lot of that money we have to spend as a church Because we need people who can step in and embrace ambiguity for a family where the man cannot do it because he's proud and unbelieving. And this is the thing. Once you ride that train of proud unbelief for a little while and you swing back and forth, here's what begins to happen in your life. And it's the third enemy that we'll talk about is you begin to be fearful. Matt talked about this a little bit last week, but here's what I'll tell you, is that once you've ridden that train of proud unbelief for a little while and you have experienced the chaos that comes as a result of that, you begin to be fearful. And here's what fear looks like. Fear, fear again, has a continuum. Fear is going to look like swinging between mania and paralysis. That's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like somebody who is going, and we see it all the time. So a guy realizes, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, and I'm afraid my family's going to get out of control. So they come to a men's roundtable talk, and then they go home, and they try and fix everything that's wrong in their family. I'm going to lose 20 pounds. I'm going to start exercising every day. We're going to get out of debt this week. Nobody's going to eat until we're out of debt. We'll sell your car. We're going to turn off the cable. We're going to sell all of this stuff. Go get all your guns. Bring them in here. We're not hunting anymore. Mania. Just, ah. Got to fix it all right now. Not really owning responsibility. Not really embracing ambiguity. Just freaking out and trying to fix everything all of a sudden. Crying, now we're going to pray together. So we're going to pray every night. We haven't prayed in 10 years. We're going to pray every night. God, forgive me for us not praying together. Ah. And so you spiritualize it all and you do all of this stuff, and nobody in the family, you know, trusts you. You don't have any credibility because you're acting out of fear. And you're not embracing the ambiguity. You're not leading. You're not really owning responsibility. You're just reacting because you're in fear. And then when that doesn't work, after about 10 days, everything doesn't get right. You fall back into paralysis. Well, I don't know what to do. I tried. Nobody in this family wants to follow me. That's, those are, that's real. And I'm just telling you, that's the fact. That happens. The reason I can describe that that way is because I've had a bunch of conversations with women whose husbands are in those circumstances. I've had conversations with parents who are dealing that way with a son. That's just what happens. Those are the real enemies. Now, here's what I want to say to you. So what's the solution? And here's the thing, this is what I want to tell you, is the solution is really simple. It's just, it's the opposite of all of that. The opposite 
of the fear that results from proud unbelief is humble faith. That's it. This is not complicated. This is not, this is not, this is all I want to say to y'all. This is not complicated. Is that I don't have to have a false clarity to hide behind. I can say, I'm not really sure, but this is what the Bible says. And I've talked to four or five people that I'm close to, and I went and met with a counselor, and we talked about these things. And so here's as much clarity as I have. And so here's what I think we need to do, but we need to humbly pray and ask God to direct us. And I'm open to being redirected. And if y'all think I'm wrong and this is not the best thing to do, then let's talk about it. But we're going to begin to move, believing that God has a plan for us, and he's going to help us work this out. Now, let's, let's pray about it. And it's that kind of just steady, humble, being open, asking questions, being open to wisdom that other people have to say to you, trusting that God, at the end of the day, is going to work it all out, not pretending I have more clarity than I have, but when I have clarity acting on it even though I don't know the potential outcome just like we go back to our historical illustration got to make a decision based on the information that I have do the best that I can don't know how it's going to end up this might be the decisive turning point and for some of you that's where you are in your lives for some of you you've been vacillating you haven't been leading you've been hiding behind a false clarity or you've been paralyzed because you're afraid of making a decision and moving. You're afraid of being wrong. And you haven't been leading and there's a critical moment. And what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to believe that God loves you on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. That he is not going to let you ultimately fail. That he actually can guide you and give you clarity as you need it. And you're going to do the best you can right now to take responsibility in the context of community with other people. Whatever your circumstances may be. And you're going to trust God with the outcome. And complicated. Now here's what I'm going to tell you. This is the deal. Is that faith has to be fed. And so for some of you, this is what I'm going to tell you is that you are not in the habit of feeding faith. You feed your fears. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And, so for, and this is what I'm going to tell you. So some of you are not having your mind transformed by the word of God. You're not owning your faith. You're not taking responsibility for it, and you are not feeding it. And so before it comes time, you can say, well, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to embrace ambiguity. Well, this is what I'm going to say. Some of you, your faith is so weak. Because you don't know the Bible, you haven't lived your life trying to understand the Bible, that you're going to have to spend some time getting biblical thinking into your head, praying, asking God to give you faith, reading the scriptures, talking with people about the Bible, listening to teaching, being diligent to feed your faith, so that when the ambiguity comes, you're going to have enough faith to fill in that gap there. You're going to have enough confidence in who God is. Now that's going to come as you act on that over time, that's going to become easier. But for some of you, you have some months, you have some years where you're going to have to mature in faith. And so if it's difficult for you, 
and you haven't been investing in your faith and feeding your faith, you don't need to panic. You say, well, I mean, I haven't been investing in my faith. That's why it's difficult. So I'm going to have to take some time. I'm going to surround myself with some people. I'm going to be in community. I'm going to have to ride other people's coattails. I'm going to have to read the Bible. I'm going to have to listen to teaching. I'm going to have to pray. I'm going to have to ask God to show up on my behalf. I'm going to have to trust him, and I'm going to take baby steps. I'm going to move a little bit at a time. I'm going to have to feed my faith. Let me give you just a few things to think about, all right, as you go for your discussion. Here's the first thing. Is I want you to think about whether you tend to avoid embracing ambiguity by creating false clarity and hiding behind rules instead of personal leadership. Or you tend to just be paralyzed and let ambiguity overwhelm you and, and just hide in inactivity. What type, what type of failure to own responsibility do you genuinely express? Hide in false clarity, control people with rules, try to control situations with rules, or do you just let ambiguity overwhelm you and you just become passive, completely passive and don't really engage? Um, I want you to think about how well are you feeding faith in your life and have a conversation about that. What does it look like? And so for some of you guys who don't have a daily practice of feeding your faith, get in your group, talk to the guys who are in your group and say, I'm struggling with it. I don't really know what this looks like. What does it look like for you? How do you do that? Who's doing well in this group? Who can actually speak into this and give me some direction? And then I want you to talk about, in the middle of that, the practical consequences, real-life examples right now. Where's an area that you are not embracing ambiguity and where you need some help to be able to do that and you need some accountability? And maybe you need some input from outside of you. Here's an area where I'm struggling, where I'm either hiding in clarity or I'm just being paralyzed in inactivity, and, and I think I need somebody to speak into that. You won't be able to resolve all of that in your group, but maybe you can get together with a guy in your group, go to lunch, and begin to get some help in that if you have a critical area where that's going on. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for these gentlemen. Would you give them wisdom and courage as they seek to move towards one another? conversation that can only begin this morning, but I pray this language would be helpful and you would help us to be men who don't hide in ambiguity, but who embrace it um, because they trust you and um, they're moving forward to take responsibility for what you've entrusted to them. In Jesus' name, amen.